Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and my guest today is Christopher Miller, Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and author of The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, which was published in July. Uh, We're going to talk today about uh, Chris's book, uh, his experiences covering the war and and the run-up to the war several years. Um, uh, He was there in Ukraine. um, And also where things stand uh, in terms of the war um, after uh, President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the United States uh, last week. Thanks very much for joining me today, Chris. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. It's good to be chatting with you again. Yes, yeah, very good to talk to you again. Um, now, as I said, uh, Chris is the Financial Times correspondent in Ukraine, but in the past, he's done some great work for Radio for Europe, um, some of which I've had the pleasure to edit uh, and work with him on. A couple of things uh, that stand out uh, have been an account of actually finding the site in the Donbass from where the missile that brought down flight MH17, uh, killing 298 passengers and crew, was fired uh, back in July 2014. Uh, And separately, also, um, another thing that stands out in Chris's reporting uh, for us in the past is a report titled The Executioners of Slavyansk, which uh, identified several militants uh, who ordered the killings of Ukrainians, the, the extrajudicial um, execution of Ukrainians by firing squad uh, early in the Donbass War. Now, before we start, I just wanted to mention a recent change in the format. It's getting less recent, um, but we're no longer conducting this podcast on the social network formerly known as Twitter. Instead, we are recording it in the studio. Now, this is a return to past practice, uh, but with a twist. While we um, cannot take questions live. We do invite listeners to send questions in advance on the topics at hand. Um, I don't believe we've received any questions. Um, uh, this has happened a few times. Um, so I just want to put out a, a reminder or a call for, for people uh, in the future. Please, please, uh, we, you know, we welcome your questions um, uh, on the topics uh, and, and address to the guest. Um, so uh, thanks for that. Um, Now, as before, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other uh, RFERL podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, uh, let's uh, get started, Chris. Let's talk about uh, about your book first. I understand uh, that it covers a period of some years uh, before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 22, uh, in addition to to the time since then. So it looks at kind of uh, the war that broke out in the Donbass in 2014 uh, and the occupation of Crimea by Russia that year, but perhaps also goes back before those events. I guess maybe the best approach is if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your earliest travels to Ukraine and kind of how the book came about and what you feel you've accomplished with it. Maybe that's not the right word, uh, but but what you feel uh, is important about the book. Uh, but also, I'd be I'd be interested in hearing um, what you what you think is is the best part of the book, or what was the most interesting, or enlightening, or or heartbreaking part, I guess, to report on, 
uh, and to write. Yeah, sure. You've, you've touched on, uh, or you've put put forward several questions there. Um, but uh, from from the beginning, right, um, which is where the book uh, starts as well. Uh, you know, the the book begins in spring of 2010 when I first arrived in Ukraine, not as a journalist actually, but as a United States Peace Corps volunteer. I had just recently graduated from university in the United States, in, in Oregon, my home state, and was living in Portland and working with local media there when I made the decision to uh, join the Peace Corps. And the Peace Corps had, had asked me where I wanted to go and, and I had uh, said, you know, I'm, I'm really interested in actually heading to someplace in Africa for a while <laughs> or even South America. In uh, Eastern Europe, I, I think, was my second, was my second choice second or third choice but um and and uh you know they said sure we'll 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 look at things and and let you know and first they said i would be heading to africa but uh eventually they came back to me and said we would like to send you to ukraine we think you'd be a good fit there and we have some openings in this next uh, uh round of, of of volunteers that we're going to be sending in there um how does that sound and i was was up for just about anything at that point and it was a new uh fascinating place that i had at the time no link to uh, i'm i'm not of ukrainian descent i did not study russian studies or eastern european studies at university uh, I actually took Japanese as a uh, middle schooler and high schooler, so uh, my my interest in foreign affairs uh, was was not focused on Eastern Europe. Yet that's where I ended up, and um, perhaps more interestingly, um, now uh, I, I ended up not only in Ukraine but in uh, Eastern Ukraine, in Donetsk Oblast, and specifically in a city called Artyomovsk at the time, which is today called Bakhmut. And that name, many of your readers will know and, and recognize as being the location of the longest and bloodiest uh, battle that's been fought between Ukrainian forces and, and Russian forces um, that, uh, well, more or less culminated in May in, in uh, the Russian capture and, and com almost complete destruction of the city. Um, but long before it was uh, the, the, the target of Russian forces, I lived in Bakhmut for two years, uh, between 2010 and 2012, and got to know the place and the people very well. I worked in a couple of schools in the city. I worked in the Central Library and had an English club and a journalism club there and made a lot of friends. And, and it became my, my temporary home, uh, but a place that I returned to uh, many times each year uh, after I left in 2012. And so, you know, that's where the book begins. And, and I chose to begin the book with my arrival in first two years in Bakhmut, Eastern Ukraine, because, uh, you know, this was a really fascinating period of time. Um, I, I had arrived just a couple of months after uh, former President Viktor Yanukovych had taken office. Mm -hmm. And this was, this was viewed by, by many Ukrainians and, and people in the West as a step backward after, after electing uh, Viktor Yushchenko, who was viewed as a, a much more uh, European-style uh, leader and, and someone who was trying to take Ukraine on a more westward, democratic European path. Uh, Viktor Yanukovych was was elected in 2010, and and so there was this 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 step back, and his his election saw uh, uh, you know rampant corruption um, really really take um, hold of the country. You know he was known to have 
um, uh, stolen billions of dollars and uh, made himself and his cronies in the uh, Russia-friendly party of regions very, very wealthy um, before he was ousted by revolutionaries during the Euromaidan or Revolution of Dignity, uh, Dignity a few years later in, in 2014. Mm-hmm. But that period of time also saw the repression of journalists and, and civil society and, and activists um, and, and really a crackdown on on uh, dissent and um, this move toward a more post-Soviet um, autocracy style of, of government rather than the uh, the more democratic um, uh, government or, or style of governing that um, Ukraine had 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 hoped for and, and much of the West had hoped for at the time. And so the early pages of the book look at, you know, me using me as the sort of vehicle to take you on this journey that I that I went on um, through Eastern Ukraine. You get to know uh, what Eastern Ukraine is like. You you get to meet a lot of um, uh, people who were and and still are my close friends. You meet politicians. Uh, you get to know what life is like for these people under the Yanukovych uh, uh, government, and and that um, you know really sets us up for uh what what um what we see in the fall of 2013 which was these euromaidan protests that would uh evolve into a full-blown revolution and you know so the the um the the early part of the book does start with my travels and it gets into um the culture and and you learn uh, about the politics and and the people before I eventually return um, by by 2013 into uh, to, to journalism and and then working as a foreign correspondent there, and uh, you know I th- I thought it was important to include to include that bit as well as the revolution of dignity Euromaidan um, and and also following that uh, the annexation of Crimea by Russia the uh, early uh, stages of Russia's invasion. Because it really helps tell the story, and I think provide really important context to Russia's full-scale invasion today. And in hindsight, you know, uh, I and and we have the benefit now of seeing a lot of signs that I think we we missed over the years, and may have um, maybe maybe should have uh, paid more attention to and and. Um, had we done so, um, we maybe being not only journalists, but but maybe the collective West and, and our leaders in the West, you know, maybe maybe there are things we, we could have done to have um, uh, stopped um, Russia's full scale invasion. And so I think there are you know some of those those things um, along the way in this book um, that 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 come out. And there is an in, what I think is a very interesting conversation and interview with the acting president of Ukraine um, after Yanukovych was overthrown by by the revolution. Um, this was an interview I did with uh, Oleksandr Turchinov, in which he he talks about how the Obama administration at the time in in 2014, spring of 2014, as Russian forces were uh, making their way across Crimea, in the early weeks of the uh, annexation, mm-hmm. uh, he was asking for help, and the West was um, just as Ukraine was very unprepared for this. I think caught off guard by by Russia's annexation, and unsure of what exactly to do, but clear in um, in its message that uh, Ukraine should stand down and not respond in Crimea because it could it could lead to escalation, and that's a message that. 
you know, we, we hear a little bit of still today this this Western hesitance, um, you know, for Ukraine to to defend itself. Um, and, and it's a part of the conversations today when we are talking about Western military assistance for Ukraine and how and when the West decides to send uh, various um, uh, missile systems or uh, F-16 jets to Ukraine um, over, you know, some concern that they could be used uh, against Russia on a, on Russian soil rather than in occupied territories. So not to not to digress too much, but you know, all of that is in the book, and I thought it was important to to uh, you know provide provide those um, those bits of of reporting in that long period of time, um, also because. You know what? What I what I like to read as a as a reader is is a story and a narrative. And what I saw in in looking for books on Ukraine were a lot of books that were history books and and written by academics, and they provide great historical perspective and um, uh, understanding of of the uh, uh, Holodomor, for example, or um, you know, uh, the the Soviet period of Ukraine or post-Soviet period of Ukraine. Um, there, there's a lot written about Ukraine's politicians and, and, and a lot written about Vladimir Putin and his view of Ukraine. But there haven't really been um, many narrative-driven uh, books about the country. And so, uh, you know, I, I felt that I, as though I was in a unique position really to provide that type of, 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 of a story and a, and a book and uh, one that I thought really would um, also provide a lot of insight into the people and culture and, and uh, highlight a lot of really important stories and things that uh, happened prior to the full-scale invasion that, uh, you know, I think, I think are worth knowing. And, and, you know, also to, again, look at the, the bigger picture. You know, it, it, this isn't a war that has been going on, you know, just since February 24th, 2022. It's a war that Russia has been waging against Ukraine now for more than nine years. And, and so writing the book in the way that I did was also um, a, a way in which I could really underscore that this is, this is a war that has been ongoing um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, doesn't have any end uh, in, in sight. Um, so I think that uh, that answers hopefully all all of your questions um, in terms also of what it what it, I, I think it's accomplished. Um, you, I think. Oh, lastly, you asked what what I found to be maybe interesting or or enlightening or heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that interview with Turchino, which has has gotten quite a lot of attention actually, and and I, I do I, I would I would underscore that and say that that is is certainly um, a, an interesting part of the book to 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 read. Um, in the context of what's happening now and the West's um, hesitation uh, to provide certain weapons for Ukraine. Uh, I, I think there are, you know, you, you mentioned the reporting that I did for, for us at RFERL when I was working uh, with you um, on the executions in Slavyansk. And, and I wrote a version of that for the book. And I think that, you know, that is one, one thing, along with the story of MH17, uh, and discovering the launch site that that have really stuck with me. I think a lot about the consequences of those moments and what they've what they've meant. Um, you know, the the executions by Igor Strokov Gherkin, uh, the Russian commander in in eastern Ukraine, who boasts that he, um, you know, fired the first shot of, of the war. That really set a, a really dark 
and disturbing tone for Russia's war against Ukraine and and what what happens under Russian occupation. And, you know, we we were shocked when we, we saw what happened during Russian uh, Russia's occupation of Bucha and other cities in Ukraine in the past year and a half. But, uh, you know, we we saw signs of that brutality uh, much earlier in this war. In, in 2014, there, there there were people who were tortured, abused and um, and even murdered in cold blood and, and executed by firing squad, um, like this reporting um, that that I did for us and 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 other outlets as well earlier on, um, showed. And and so you know all of that has has stuck with me. And um, you know there there are many other stories, unfortunately, in the book too that are, are rather disturbing, and and really do underscore Russia's uh, brutality toward the Ukrainians. Um, but but there are also many stories I think that show and highlight Ukraine's uh, resilience and defiance and and there are moments that are uh, in, very inspiring and that I have found inspiring and are largely uh, the reasons which I, I want to continue doing the supporting and I've stayed on the story for so long. Uh, thanks very much, Chris. Uh, just a couple of uh, just to. To go back to a couple points, uh, it sounds like a great um, uh, treatment of of kind of the the years um, running up, you know, through the lens of your of your having been there uh, first as a as a Peace Corps volunteer and then and then as a journalist, uh, kind of the years leading up to uh, you know to um, the annexation of Crimea and and the war that Russia fomented and then participated in in the Donbass. Uh, and then, and then, leading um, later in February 2022 to to the full scale invasion. Um, it sounds like great background, um, and and as you mentioned, uh, kind of very chilling, disturbing signs in your reporting for, for us for RFE the of of the kind of thing um, that that was done by the Russian forces uh, you know, in Bucha and and many other many other places uh, following. Uh, the full-scale invasion, um, and also interesting, certainly about the Turchinov Tur- Tur- interview, um, the idea of, you know, the U.S. Hesit- hesitancy, um, uh, and and kind of, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a narrative that's that's pushed for or put forward by Russia, certainly um, that that obviously the the Kremlin, Putin says. That the 2014 uh, the the ouster or the um, the pressure that that caused um, Yanukovych to essentially abandon office and flee to Russia, you know, was was a U.S. backed coup. You know, I think it sounds like the interview is one of the you know one of the good pieces of, of evidence. You know that <laughs> um, this is not what was this is not what was happening. So um, that that sounds that sounds interesting as well. Um, I'd like to uh, go on now uh, to the second second question, which is really about what's happening now. Um, you know, obviously you're still there. Uh, you're 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 in in Kiev, uh, talking to us from Kiev, uh, reporting for the Financial Times, um, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, there, there's no there's no end to the war. At least uh, it's hard to see an end to the end to the war. Uh, you know, at this point. Um, uh, you, you know, Ukraine wants to, uh, of course, um, push uh, Russian forces out of Ukraine entirely. 
uh, and Russia is um, at the very least saying, you know, you need to accept our um, at that five regions of Ukraine are actually regions of Russia, uh, um, four of which Russian forces do not control anywhere near, well, or do not control in their entirety. So, you know, those obviously are positions that are far apart. Um, Ukrainian counteroffensive is happening now. So, and I mentioned Zelensky's trip uh, to the United States last week. Um, he addressed the UN General Assembly in New York, met with U.S. President Joe Biden, and with lawmakers in Washington. Uh, this is ahead of, obviously, the election, uh, presidential and, and uh, congressional election coming up. Um, not this November, but next November. Uh, and then he uh, went on to Canada. Um, quite a bit of your reporting for Radio Free Europe a few years back involved what was at the time Ukraine's quite troubled relationship with the United States. Basically the time, or I guess between the time Zelensky took office uh, in May 2019 and the U.S. election in November 2020, in which Biden defeated the incumbent Donald Trump. Uh, now, this was all well before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, of course, and the situation is quite different now. Uh, but, you know, obviously you've been reporting intensively on the war, the current uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, and also on the diplomacy, the issue of Western support for Ukraine in terms of weapons, financial aid, and other kinds of backing. I wonder if you could, uh, drawing on your reporting on in the field and in Kyiv, give us kind of an assessment of, of how things stand following Zelensky's trip to North America. Yeah, um, I guess I'll start with, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Ukraine's, um, uh, I forget the word you just used, um, but but it's not great relationship with the United States. Uh, when I had, when I was working with, um, with, with RFERL and reporting on uh, on on Ukraine and the U.S. at the time, but I think that you know that relationship was was um, uh, you know n not great because I think it, it was it was it was President Trump at the time uh, asking you know Zelensky to do him a favor, right? This was it wasn't that um, uh, Ukraine was developing its on its own or unilaterally this kind of bad relationship with the United States. I think you know the United States largely, but and, and there was bipartisan support for Ukraine um, here at the time still um, was largely you know supportive of Ukraine. But of course you'll remember there was this um, Trump administration and Trump and President Trump himself you know forcing uh, trying to force President the new the newly elected President Zelensky uh, to open these investigations against his uh, against Trump's then. Um, uh, competitor um, Joe Biden. Um, I, I think you know that the relationship uh, was was restored somewhat with a, a Biden election victory, and we've seen strong bipartisan support for Ukraine uh, since then and over the course of Russia's full-scale invasion. Uh, but if we look at Zelensky's visit to Washington last week, we you know it, there were absolutely uh, signs that. Um, signs of of a, of a slight of a slight cooling, perhaps, or some um, uh, hesitancy. I think, um, particularly on the Republican side, you know, Zelensky was was welcomed like a hero last December when he showed up and gave a a, a big um, a emotional and very powerful um, speech to a joint meeting of Congress. And this time around, um, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy refused a request by President Zelensky to again speak to a joint 
meeting of Congress mm -hmm. and instead asked him to um, to meet in some kind of room off of the you know beaten path in the Capitol. I think it was one of the archive rooms and you know it had a much different vibe to it. Um, there were you know many fewer people in attendance. Zelensky did not get FaceTime with with every uh, uh, member of Congress. And even while he was there, there were some on the uh, further right wing of the Republican Party who continued to uh, to to criticize uh, the Biden administration's handling of of um, uh, the war in Ukraine and its continued support for it. And and part of the major debate in Washington at the moment and among members of Congress is the continued that that continued support for Ukraine. And some of these uh, more far right members of Congress. Um, are standing in the way of, of um, you know, potentially delivering billions of uh, billions more dollars of, of uh, humanitarian assistance and, and military assistance to Ukraine. And so, Zelensky and his visit, um, his visit this time around, really was um, to shore up that support um, that that he uh, received in the early months of the invasion that um, uh, he was insured of when he arrived. Um, uh, back in December of 2022, you know, this was uh, essentially a, a rescue mission, mm -hmm. um, trying to to make sure that the billions of dollars in aid is going to keep flowing. They're now realizing, both in Kiev, leaders in Kiev and in Washington, that this war is going to be likely a protracted war. Um, you know, we we talked earlier about how it's been going on already for nine years, but it looks as though it's going to continue going on for for more and um, at, at a level. Uh, and scale that, you know, we're seeing now, which is, um, you know, missile and drone attacks um, on a on a daily basis um, by Russia, right? Not to mention a ground war in the south and the east. Nearly 20% of Ukraine's territory occupied. Uh, people being um, uh, killed and and maimed on a daily basis. Um, all of the country, not just the east, as it was for for nearly eight years or so, um, under under attack. And and so he, you know. He being President Zelensky came to Washington looking for um, a, a long-term security guarantee uh, from Washington um, to to continue to be able to defend uh, for Ukraine to defend itself and and also to help set um, set a tone across other Western nations and particularly um, uh, other NATO countries in the EU that this level of support should continue. Um, the other the other concern um, that he you know, was addressing in his meetings in Washington where, where it was about the U.S. elections. And, you know, President Trump has not gone away. And the messages from Trump over the last several weeks have been uh, rather flattering toward Russia and, um, and and Vladimir Putin. And we know that he has some sort of um, bizarre affinity for for Putin in that he you know views him as a strong man leader. And and, you know, Trump has said things like, I could solve the war in 24 hours and it would be over. Um, and, and that, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that that is impossible. Um, but even if he were to try to solve it in a short period of time, the things that he is suggesting aren't solutions that would be beneficial to Ukraine and and aren't solutions that the Biden administration and even um, uh, Democratic and Republican lawmakers say would be beneficial to, to Ukraine and would be a good way to to settle this uh, war. And, and that is very concerning to Kiev um, because this would be uh, a second term for Donald Trump. Um, he's, he's essentially 
uh, coming into to, to the election saying, if I win, um, you know, I'm going to take vengeance on my political enemies. I'm going to um, use my powers to uh, to the greatest extent imaginable uh, to carry out, um, you know, uh, my agenda. And and that that is very worrying um, uh, here here in Ukraine and um, specifically uh, among Zelensky's camp. Um, so that's you know that that was the um, the context in which or the or the, the the climate in which um, Zelensky arrived in. Um, you know he did leave with uh, more in terms of military support. Uh, Biden announced more air defense, um, artillery shells, and and other military equipment and supplies for Ukraine, uh, which is going to help it uh, its army continue to to fight its counteroffensive and to defend itself from Russian air airstrikes. Um, we know that uh, through my reporting and other reporting um, in, in, in U.S. media that Biden also very quietly uh, agreed to send these attackums, uh, long-range missiles um, topped with um, cluster munitions to Ukraine, at least in a small batch at first, mm -hmm. um, see how they might be used. And, and that's interesting um, and, and certainly a development. Uh, you know, the, the you know, United States had, had been holding off um, in sending those, and there had been a, a very uh, serious debate within the White House and and um, uh, and, and, and Biden very um, uh, specifically um, Biden was was very um, skeptical uh, about sending them. But uh, we learned that in the last couple of weeks he had uh, come around and um, was going to and, and did uh, tell Zelensky uh, quietly that um, they would be sending some of those. Um, you know, maybe now I'll move on just a bit to the to the counteroffensive. Mm hmm. Um, because that was a major topic both in the United States and, and again in Canada, where, uh, where Zelensky um, uh, finished his trip, uh, and also in, in the United Nations, where Zelensky spoke to both the um, General Assembly and, and uh, uh, the Security Council. Um, you know, this is this is a really important moment for the Ukrainians. This counteroffensive has not gone according to plan. It's um, been been. Uh, uh, it's it, it's been it's been very slow to develop. Um, there were several uh, uh, hurdles that the Ukrainians have had to 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 learn to overcome. Um, these minefields being one of them. They're still uh, th these Russian minefields are so dense. They're they're still giving um, uh, Ukrainian forces on the ground um, um, some some major major headaches. But they've managed to uh, puncture Russia's front lines in the south, and. You know, his messaging, Zelensky's messaging um, during his um, North American trip was that we're making progress. Um, you're backing, you know, you want to back a winner. You're backing a winner here. We're on the, we're on the right side. I think was on the right side or the bright side um, of things. And, and that was also his message in, in Washington and to the UN that, you know, you, you, you all need to be on the right side of history here. Russia is on the wrong side. Ukraine is, is not only fighting for its freedom and independence, but we're fighting for yours as well. And essentially telling people you need to put your money where your mouth is. You, you claim to support um, uh, the idea of freedom, independence, and democracy and to, uh, to assist burgeoning democracies like Ukraine's, um, you know, continue to support us. And uh, you know, he, he came home to Kiev, I think, um, not not writing as high as he did after his December 2022 trip, uh, but he did uh, bring back with him, uh, you know, a new security uh, new security packages, both from the United States and from Canada. Um, news of these attackums did trickle out, and 
Uh, I'm not sure that uh, Zelensky's camp or the Biden administration actually wanted those or that piece of news to to be out um, as not to tip off the Russians, who they, I think they would like to surprise with with these weapons. Um, but I know from from my chatting with uh, my sources here in Kiev that many people found that to be um, very promising, and a sign that there would be continued uh, continued support and that it would be one f one fewer thing that they would have to argue for. Um, and, and now they can continue um, their their uh, uh, what's the word um, I guess. Uh, arguing for other various things that they would like and see as being um, potentially beneficial in the battlefield. Um, you know, F-16s and, and other uh, fighter jets being being among those things. Mm -hmm. um, another element and, and you know, or, or sort of cloud hanging over Zelensky's trip um, was this element of time, you know, time in, in terms of um, what the, the U.S. political situation is going to be like over the coming months and how that might uh, influence the uh, U.S. support for Ukraine. Um, also, uh, time in terms of um, uh, whether or not the Ukrainians are able to break through in a in a really um, major, meaningful way that would mean the capture of the recapture of of uh, occupied territory, and if not, um, what that might mean for Russia in terms of uh, you know really digging in. Um, tightening its grip on these occupied regions while also having time to ramp up uh, artillery production and missile production and um, uh, you know really looking at this again uh, as, as, a, as a, a war that's going to be um, uh, long term and and um, I think I think many people here in Ukraine are concerned that time might be on Russia's side um, simply because it just has, uh, I mean, it, it's it's ramping up production um, of 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 its of um, uh, artillery shells and and other military equipment and and that's sort of guaranteed um, while Western support um, uh, isn't necessarily um, so that hopefully that provides some um, yeah uh, you know broader context of of, of his trip. Uh, I, I think just to sum to sum it up, you know, it, it was it was a successful trip. I think for Zelensky, I, I've spoken with a couple of, uh, of, of my sources within his uh, administration upon their arrival um, back back here, and, and and they were pleased with it. Um, you know, they they were happy with the meetings on the hill as well, and and did find that there remains uh, strong bipartisan support. But again, there is some concern that within the Republican Party there are people who. Um, might have influence enough to change the mind of of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, um, potentially uh, influencing decisions in Congress that are uh, needed uh, in order for for uh, this level of United States support to continue for Ukraine. All right. Well, thanks very much, Chris. That's uh, I mean that's a great, um, a very comprehensive but but pithy summary of of the trip of Zelensky's trip uh, and the counteroffensive and kind of the situation. Uh, with Western aid or uh, U.S. U.S. aid and support, as you say, kind of the the U.S. elections is is uh, you know is is a big factor, um, uh, and it's you know it's hard to say how things will develop um, during the campaign and, and the election itself, of course. Um, uh, but the idea, you know, I think uh, people have, uh, you know, the 
it certainly seems clear, as you say, that that, that the war uh, is set to continue. Um, you know, in part because of the elections in in Russia uh, in in March, presidential election um, next March, and and in the U.S. You know, I think that's one of the factors in. Uh, I think Putin certainly has no desire or interest in in uh, making any compromises. Certainly, until he finds out what happens. Uh, in those votes, uh, not that the Russian one uh, is uh, is hard to um, guess what will happen. Um, but I just wanted to before we before we wrap it up, I just wanted to mention I think a very important point you made, or not point, but uh, describing uh, the not just the fact that this war you know seems to be destined to go on for for a long time, but but also the scale and on the daily basis the scale of the war. Um, with, as you say, about twenty percent of uh, Ukrainian territory held held by Russia, and people being killed and maimed in Ukraine um, every day, attacks throughout the country. You know, so and I think that that kind of detail, um, detail, that kind of uh, you know, very very troubling um, detail about about what's happening in people's lives. Uh, it is sometimes kind of glossed over when when people talk about the war in kind of a in kind of a, a, a wide scale. So so uh, appreciate uh, your your pointing that out. Um, and I guess uh, we're going to wrap it up here, Chris. Uh, great to great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, it was good to to chat with you again. Thank you for having me on. All right. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Christopher Miller. Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and the author of The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Uh, That book was published in July. Uh, And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. Tune in next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening. 